Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. A difficult subject now. These are the phone calls that you just don't want to get. They stay on your mind forever. Uh, We have some difficult news. Your loved one has been involved in an incident or an accident. And imagine if that call tells you that the death is considered a possible suicide and the matter is in the hands of the coroner that the death requires investigation, shock upon shock. A few weeks ago, I helped out Wesley Life Force. It's a charity attached to the Wesley Mission in Sydney as the MC of their annual service of remembrance for people who have died through suicide at the Opera House in Sydney. Uh, It was an amazing and very emotional experience. And as I spoke with the relatives of those who had died, several of them told me about a service that had been very helpful to them. Uh, This is a service run by the New South Wales Department of Health in partnership with the Office of the Coroner. It's a suicide support service that plays a huge role in caring and supporting for those left behind after a suicide. Now, coroner, of course, is a very special type of magistrate. They're a judicial officer. The legal system needs an answer, uh, and that can only add to the grief of the person's family at that time. And that's where this program, Support After Suicide, goes to work. A dedicated team of social workers and counsellors. Their first contact with their client is to make one of those difficult phone calls. And the head of that team is Colleen Fitzpatrick. We want to let them know that their loved one is here with us or their relative is here with us. And we introduce ourselves and we let the families know that we're going to be their point of contact and that we're going to, in, in a sense, we're going to walk them through this coronial process. We're going to be there by their side and assist them to navigate through this process. So we're the hand that they're going to hold mm-hmm. while their relative is admitted here. We can facilitate viewings and support police around the formal identification of the body and then provide them with information and support throughout the process. I can't imagine what it is to stand with someone who is identifying their loved one, perhaps someone they last saw when they left home for work in the morning or a son who went off on a motorcycle or yeah, it's always a devastating experience, Stephen. Families always hold out for a little bit of hope that somehow the police have got it wrong and yeah. it's not going to be their loved one. Yeah. It's an important time in people's lives. Yes. What do you learn about human nature in moments like that? Do you know what? I think I've learnt that no matter what's gone on, People are always loved. There is always someone that loves this person that is deceased. Mm. So it's how, you know, it informs my work knowing that doesn't, you know, I get a, I get a small summary in that police report to the coroner. Mm. But regardless of what that little summary tells me about the person, I, I find that, yeah, they're always loved. There's someone there that always loves them. And I think that's really touching. Well, that's that's a beautiful reflection. Colleen, the reason we're speaking is because I was involved with the Wesley Mission in a service of remembrance for people who have uh, died through suicide. And uh, almost all of the families that I spoke to kept talking about this service that you provide. So we want to talk in particular about how you support someone through um, the death of a loved one through a suicide. Is there a material difference? Oh, I think... A- We acknowledge that a bereavement by suicide Mm. 
it has another layer of trauma mm-hmm. and stigma associated with the death and that contributes it does it can contribute to the pain and the anguish that our that our clients experience yes and from speaking with these family members a few weeks ago i i uh well, the questions are all there. Why? Why did he? Mm. Why didn't he just? All mm. of those questions, mm. you must have heard them all. The what ifs. Mm. Yeah, so our, what we try to, our aim is to provide a supportive and safe atmosphere and also to normalise those reactions and also to, you know, to try and reduce the sense of isolation that is often felt by people bereaved by suicide. Why are they isolated in particular? Culturally, we, as a society, I think that we actually don't know how to respond to people in distress. Yes. And we want to fix them up. We don't want to be... It's it's uncomfortable to sit with people in their grief. And I think we're unaccustomed or ill-equipped as a society to be able to just sit with someone in their grief. Yes. And is that what you do? Yes. Largely, that is what we do. We, We... sit with people in their most painful moments and try to provide them with the the skills and the information that they need to then be able to move forward with this bereavement and integrate it into their into their life but not forget their loved one because hmm. their loved one is always with them yes so what are the skills that they need well, it's very individual. It depends on each individual what they what they bring to the group. Some people, they need all of the information around the circumstances of the death. And I kind of liken it to if you look at a film reel, they need to have every um, every little sequence filled before they can make sense of what's happened. So for some people, it's information. And then they can then accept the reality of the loss and then integrate that into their into their life story. Hmm. But for some other people, they don't want to have that level of knowledge or information. They might want to attend to their grief reactions and, and the overwhelming feelings of sadness and loss, and, and they want to try and make sense of the physical manifestations of their loss. And so we provide them with a safe, non-judgmental setting in which they can make contact with others who have experienced that bereavement, um, and that's through the Support After Suicide group, but also via the newsletter as well. Yes, now, as I've mentioned to you, um, several of the families that I spoke to actually knew about the Wesley service because of your newsletter, which was interesting. Now, tell me about this famous newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a bi-monthly newsletter and it's written by the Support After Suicide Coordinator. In it, we talk about, you know, the, the psychosocial aspects of a bereavement and how to manage following the bereavement. So it also mirrors what we talk about in the group. So if you can't make the group, then we will talk, we will write about it in the newsletter and we send it out. And currently it has, a re- we send it out to 1,100 people every second month. And that's um, read by up to four other people in their families. They share the newsletter through them. Sometimes people, we also send it out via email. That represents 1,100 people who have died. Is that what you're saying? That represents 1,100 people who have 
said that yes, they do want to receive yes, the newsletter yes. because not everyone identifies with their bereavement as being a suicide bereavement. And some people don't want or don't need the support of this service as well. They may have a suicide bereavement, but they have other strategies or other systems in place in which they can manage the loss. Yes. My guest on Open House is Colleen Fitzpatrick. She's with the New South Wales Department of Health. She is the Senior Forensic Counsellor, and that means she oversees this amazing support after suicide program. You said a moment ago not everybody identifies their bereavement as a suicide bereavement. What did you mean by that? Well, the police may report the death or the circumstances to indicate that the bereavement is a suicide. I see. But there's also, you know, that's why we ask the family members if they would like to be referred to the program. Or we could say to them, say to the family members, do you think this death was intentional? Or what was, what are your thinking? What are your thoughts around what happened to, let's say, Jack? Mm -hmm. And then the family can tell us what their understanding of the circumstances is. Sometimes it's not very clear, you know. Sometimes Mm -hmm. there might be an overdose and someone has taken an overdose and we don't know if that was intentional or not. If there's no note left, then we can't make the assumption that this is a suicide bereavement. Because running alongside this parallel to it is a legal judicial process. The coroner needs to find answers. That's right. So how do people interact with that? What is that experience like of interacting with a judicial process even while you're um, trying to grieve? Oh, I think they can I think it can be for some people they are understanding that this is a requirement of the law, but for other family members, for other families, you know, for some religious and cultural groups, mm. it's it's an impediment to how they um, how they their faith indicates that they need to look after their loved ones. So mm. for some cultural groups, they they need to have the body out of the building as quickly as possible. They need to bury their loved one within a certain time frame. And unfortunately, the coronial system or process impedes the families from being able to do that. And that can, that can be really difficult for the families. Yes. And it can also be difficult for us on the other side as yes. well. Now, your training is in uh, social work. That's right. Um, the the death of a loved one, death itself, is the most profoundly spiritual thing that can ever happen. Mm. Um, how does your training equip you for that? How does social work training equip you to support To support families? people in what is a profoundly spiritual um, moment. And you're right, it is. It is. It's a... Um we have lots, there's a lot of um, theories and skills that we draw upon mm. when working with families who are experiencing a bereavement. And it's actually trying to, you know, we, we try and look at everyone as an individual and then provide them with what it is that they need in that situation. Yes. So for family, you know, for some people, there's the, the dual process model where people move within a functional um, state. Mm. And, you know, you find these people where they just want to organise the funeral and they need to be busy doing functional tasks. And then there's um, the the other side of that process is where people actually just want to attend to their their emotional state and explore that. Mm. So, yeah, there's a... And there's, you know, the theories of attachment um, 
by Bowlby. You know, they talk about the attachment to their attachment to that person that's bereaved, and and that can influence their bereavement outcomes. So we draw on a lot of different theories. Yes. And my my colleague did a her PhD into interviewing and not viewing, and that was really helpful to inform our practice as well. What is the current thinking about that? Well, it's around providing families with as much information to make an informed choice. Um, so it was Dr Jane Mole, and she interviewed families, and it was, if people had, um, her, her findings were that if, if people were were sure that they wanted to view and they received information and were informed and supported to do that, then the outcome for them was was mostly positive. Mm. If people were sure that they didn't want to view and they were supported to do that, then that was um, a good outcome for them. It's people that expressed some ambivalence or were unsure about whether to view and it's around viewing when you have some ambivalence that you may you know, possibly have... A, an adverse outcome? Yeah, yeah, or a difficult bereavement process I around understand. that. Yeah. Wow. So our role is to advocate for each individual in the room when they um, when they attend here for yes. viewings and identifications. Yes, I see. Well, Colleen, um, sadly, we all know families, many, too many uh, families for whom this has become a reality, the death of a loved one through a suicide. Um, and one of the things I learned in speaking with the families a few weeks back was... Um, that the person who has died is not the manner of their death. The person who has died is their family member. And so what I found kind of worked, was helpful in that environment, was just to say, people, tell me about your loved one. Yes. And, you know, that is what I hear most from people who are part of our program. They just want to hear their loved one's name. They want to talk about their loved one that has died. That's... we. And often that's what is the that's a really important part of the support after suicide group is just to be able to talk about their loved one. It's that one hour or a couple of hours once a month hmm. where they can speak openly and honestly and you know tell well, stories that, and that, reminisce. Yes, and it's a great tip for those of us who are in communities where this is a reality, not to. If there is a desire to talk about it, you, you just talk about it. And I was chatting with one fellow and he's saying, saying to me, oh, my son, he was a rat bag, he was this, he was that, he was that, you know, but I loved him, you know? Yes. So you remember everything about him, not just the nice kind of um, the happy things that you tell, but also, yeah, when he was seven, he did this and it was really, it was a big problem. And <laughs> Yes, yes, and that's what we find as well from our clients, that slowly the the circumstances of the death fade and more of the memories of what the person's life involved come to the fore yeah. so yeah the trauma subsides and then people are able to integrate that loss but also experience mm. some of the joy that re-experience the joy of their relationship with their deceased relative yeah and that that's a healthy yes way to end up colin what do you like about your job i think it's um well it's it's really meaningful work and i like i like the challenge of working in the legal with the coroner the medical with the doctors and then the psychosocial aspect with the social work team and i really i i have an i have a great team that i work with so 
it's not only the work, it's not only the clients, it's also the colleagues in which I work with and the department that I work for. Well, I want to say thank you for what you do and I've seen the benefits of it in the families that I met. And uh, I know it took us a long time to be able to get to talk to you because you're extremely busy and that indicates to me that your job must contain a lot of pressures. So I just want to say thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for, um, you know, following up on the interest from the from the Wesley uh, Life Force Memorial. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. That's Colleen Fitzpatrick. She is the head of that Support After Suicide Service run by the New South Wales Department of Health in conjunction with the coroner's office. I was just so pleased to hear that they do that um, and to see that it made such a difference to the bereaved families at that Wesley Life Force Service that I was involved with and thought I should highlight that for you. And I hope you found that a helpful interview. It may have raised some difficult issues for you and if, if uh, you are seeking help right now, 13 11 14 is the number for Lifeline, 13 11 14. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.